Good morning. The reading for today is from John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Nick. It's always good to have a school principal do the reading. No mistakes whatsoever. Very good. Uh, good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you're new, we're glad that you're here. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia. Um, before we get into our text, which is John 17, and I would encourage you to open your Bibles to John 17 so that you can follow along with me. We're going to look at that passage that Nick just read for us and more about that later. But I've got a few other things before we get started. A couple of reminders. First of all, today is our annual church picnic at 4 o'clock from 4 to 6. Zach's excited about the church picnic, yes. Have you ever been to one? <laughs> He's just excited. That's just the way he is. Um, but you will be excited because Bruce Brown is coming to grill hamburgers and cheeseburgers for us. He's going to bring his famous macaroni and cheese. He told me on the phone this week that he's probably going to bring some bacon, too, for the cheeseburgers, for those of you that like bacon on cheeseburgers. And then he's got um, vegan chili. And then uh, also on the, on the grass, we're going to have all kinds of stuff for the kids. So we have a, like a toddler inflatable. And then we have a, a, some kind of an obstacle course that anybody can do. And then we have an inflatable 21-foot slide that anyone can do. And there's sort of a history of all the pastors from Arcadia getting on that slide and getting a picture together. And, all that. Anyway, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, all you got to do is show up. That's it. You can eat, have a good time, meet some people. That's it. Please come uh, today, and uh, I'd be glad to see you there. And then the other reminder is for this coming Wednesday night, uh, we are having, uh, really Steve Wheeler is kind of leading it, but I'll be up on the platform with him, and we're going to be 
uh, talking to and having a conversation with our two elder candidates, and that would be Tyler James and Tyler Thompson, who are both uh, pastors on staff here. And we invite you all to come and listen to that. And then at the end, I think, if, you can believe, if you've ever spent time with Wheeler, it's hard to believe that he would set aside time for anybody else to ask questions. But he says he's going to leave time for other people to ask questions, so you can also ask questions as well. So um, the other thing I wanted to do is, uh, this is a significant weekend. It's a three-day weekend, but the reason it's a three-day weekend is because it's Martin Luther uh, King uh, Jr. weekend, uh, honoring him. And as somebody who studies rhetoric and has studied rhetoric for most of my life, uh, I've, I've read easily more than 100 of his speeches and his sermons. And I just, I'm, I'm mesmerized every time I read a, I Also, it, those of you who have read, for instance, a letter from Birmingham Jail, some people call that the greatest piece of literature that any American has ever uh, produced. Um, and so I want to read something uh, from King uh, today that I don't think has ever been read here before. I do this every um, Martin Luther King weekend, pr- try to find something to read from him. But I want to preface it by saying this. One of the things that we need to remember about Martin Luther King is his insistence, which he outlined in at least two essays that I've read and said many times in his speeches and in his sermons, is that he was a minister of the gospel first and a civil rights leader second. And he says the reason he was a civil rights leader is because of the gospel, and he was so frustrated with the media of his time and I would guess he's probably frustrated with the media of our time as well, who continued to get that wrong. Uh, They always described him as a civil rights leader, and it sort of irked him that they didn't describe him as a minister of the gospel. And and what I'm going to read from is a speech that he gave in Atlanta on August 16, 1967, just a few days before, not a few days, but a few months before he was assassinated, which is titled, Where Do We Go From Here? It's widely considered one of his three best speeches that he ever uh, gave. And he delivered a lot of speeches. And and what I'm about to read is kind of a long excerpt, but I just found it so powerful. Uh, And and it's just, it was a speech, but you just hear and see the gospel undertones in everything that he wrote here. So let me read it, and then we'll get into John 17. He said this, I'm concerned about a better world. I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about brotherhood. I'm concerned about truth. And when one is concerned about those things, he can never advocate violence. For through violence, you may murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder. Through violence, you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. Darkness does not put out darkness. Only light can do that. And so I say to you, I have also decided to stick with love, for I know that love is ultimately the answer to mankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about love everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today, and I'm not talking about some emotional bosh when I talk about love. Now, I want to just stop there. It's the only time I'll stop. Does anybody know what emotional bosh means, what the word bosh means? Anybody? Anybody? I had to look it up. Anybody? It's not a former power forward from the Miami Heat. Emotional bosh literally means nonsense. So he says, I'm not talking about emotional nonsense when I'm talking about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. For I have seen too much hate. 
I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizen counselors in the South to want hate myself because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself, that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we aren't moving wrong when we do it. Because John was right. God is love. He who hates does not know God, but he who loves has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. So let me say it this way. One evening, a juror, a juror came to Jesus, and he wanted to know what he could do to be saved. Jesus didn't get bogged down on the kind of isolated approach of what you shouldn't do. Jesus didn't say, now Nicodemus, you must stop lying. He didn't say, Nicodemus, now you must not commit adultery. He didn't say, now Nicodemus, you must stop cheating if you're doing that. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop drinking liquor if you are doing that excessively. Jesus said something altogether different because Jesus realized something basic. If a man will lie, he will steal. And if a man will steal, he will kill. So instead of getting bogged down on one thing, Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. We must be born again. So as we go, let us be dissatisfied until America no longer has an amalgamation of creeds, but an anemia of deeds. Let us be dissatisfied until those who live on the outskirts of hope are brought into the metropolis of daily security. Let us be dissatisfied until integration is not seen as a problem, but as an opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. Let us be dissatisfied until men and women, however black they may be, will be judged on the basis of the content of their character and not on the basis of the color of their skin. Let us be dissatisfied. Let us be dissatisfied until every state capital will be housed by a governor who will do justly, who will love mercy, and who will walk humbly with his God. Let us be dissatisfied until every city hall, from every city hall, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when the lion and the lamb shall lie down together and every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid. Let us be dissatisfied, and men will recognize that out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. Amen. I just, found that, I just find that very powerful and probably even more relevant today. So thank you for indulging. So back to the real Lord's Prayer, John 17. Jesus prays. And I know Matthew 6, we call that the Lord's Prayer. But in fact, Jesus was instructing the disciples how to pray. So maybe we should call it the disciples' prayer. And this is the Lord's prayer. So other people call it the high priestly prayer because Jesus is praying as a high priest. And we are taking three weeks to study this prayer. We're in the second week. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into this middle part of the prayer, the passage that Nick read for us. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that right now, you would eliminate all the distractions from this room, including me, if I'm a distraction, so that your word may be heal, heard, so that your Holy Spirit may fill us right now. We would welcome the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would illuminate your words and deliver your words to the, heart, the hearts and the minds of your people. 
We ask that you would help us to understand what your will and what your wisdom and what your truth are so that we could pursue those things. But most of all, we ask that we would pursue Jesus because he is our Savior. He is the one who loved us first by going to the cross, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the outline of the prayer is pretty simple. The first five verses, which we looked at last week, Jesus prays for his glory and for the glory of the Father, but he's praying for his glory only so that the, glory, so that the Father would be glorified. Then today we look at how Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, those disciples who are with him in that moment. And the beauty of this prayer is actually that the disciples are there hearing their rabbi and their savior praying for them in a tender way. And then verses 20 through 26 next week, Jesus prays for all of those who would come after his immediate disciples. In other words, he prays for the church. He prays for us uh, today even. And so with these verses here, there's like maybe 14 of them. We'll, we'll go through these verses in three sections, starting with verses 6 through 8. And I will tell you, I usually don't get this form, uh, formal or formulaic with my outline on a Sunday morning. I usually just kind of let it rip. But I saw this passage here, these 14 verses, kind of split into three pretty uh, firm areas where verses 6 through 8, we're going to talk about how the disciples are prepared and then verses 9 through 12, we're going to talk about how the disciples are to be unified. And then verses 13 through 19, even though the disciples are prepared and the disciples should be unified, uh, verses 13 through 19 talk about how the disciples desperately need God and the resurrected Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit to walk along with them, even though they're prepared and they're unified. That there's still this element of God's presence that is needed. So the first three verses... The disciples are prepared, 6 through 8. When the chief, I'm sorry, that's chapter 19, wrong chapter. Here we go. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the word, world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to... And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. So two things I want us to see in this opening three verses. First, I'm making the case here in these three verses that the disciples are prepared for their coming ministries. But then the next question should be, well, how? How are they prepared for their ministries that are, that are to come? Well, according to what Jesus prays here, they've been prepared in three ways. Number one... God chose them and gave the disciples to Jesus, and then God kept the disciples for Jesus. That word kept in the Greek literally means to protect and to provide for. So God chooses them, and then he gives them to Jesus to, to form his rabbi's yoke, so they're his disciples, and then God protected them during these three years from all kinds of harassment, all kinds of dangers. He kept them for Jesus so that they could continue to be Jesus' disciples. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God also gave the disciples his word, his teachings through Jesus. And that word is truth and it's wisdom and it reveals God's will in their life as well. And then third, the reason they're prepared is because they believed. You got to believe in order to be prepared. Believe in the one whom God the Father has sent. So you and I today, if we want to know how to be prepared and committed and commit and convicted followers of Jesus in the midst of a dark and broken and cruel world that's going to hate and mock us for our belief, how do we prepare for it? 
We give ourselves to God and his gospel protection and provision through Jesus Christ. We read, study, drink, ingest, and wrestle with the word of God, the Bible, and we believe, we trust, we have faith, and we surrender our lives to him. That's how we get prepared. Now, here's the second thing we need to see in this paragraph. And there is great irony in this one. There's tension in this second point that I want to show us. The disciples have been chosen by Jesus. They had been given to Jesus by the Father. They had been kept, protected, and provided for. They had God's word and truth and wisdom, and they believed. But when it came to the crucifixion, which just happens only a few hours later, when it came to that silly trial of injustice that Jesus had to go through, the reality of this unjust persecution, they were still living under the guise of their own power and strength. They still didn't get it. The Holy Spirit still hadn't come. Pentecost was still several days away. And so they were still living under their own power, their own strength. And what did they do? They fled Jesus when it, when it came down. Even though they said they wouldn't. So we're going to stand with you. And then they all fled. Even Peter, who, who really made a statement about it, he denies Jesus. Even after promising that they wouldn't. And yet, Jesus, who knew that they were going to do this, who knew that they were going to walk away from him, he, he prays to the Father that the Father would preserve, preserve them through the horror of the cross and through their abandonment. Even in their walking away from Jesus, God the Father preserved them. And after the resurrection, when the Holy Spirit came and when their faithfulness and their ministry depended not on their power, but on God's power, that's when they thrived. And that's when you see, when you see like Peter change from this guy who runs away from the little servant girl, questioning him about whether or not he knows Jesus. Now he's standing before the Sanhedrin. He's standing before the governors of his time. And he's saying, I cannot but proclaim the gospel. That's what I'm going to do. Do what you will to me. And I know how difficult this is. I know I've been living this for 35 years, in a sense. Not, not as bad as them, but I've been living it for 35 years. I've been a follower of Jesus for 35 years. And for 35 years, I have known cognitively, I, I had all the right language, I could recite all the right answers. I've known cognitively that God is sovereign and that all power, wisdom, and truth are from Him. But I also will confess to you that it's taken me this long to even approach getting truly serious about how I'm really not making anything happen and I can't prevent anything from happening and that my job isn't about results, but my job is to just be faithful. My job is to figure out what God is calling me to do and then be obedient to that. My job is to be in His will, walking with Him, but relying on His sovereignty for whatever the results are, even if I don't agree with the results. In fact, if I don't agree with the results, it's an opportunity for me to learn from God and to understand why it's about His goodwill, His purpose, and not mine. And how somehow that's going to make me even stronger. My job is to be obedient to His call for me, whatever that is. And I can just leave the results to him. And I got to tell you something, there's something really freeing in the midst of that. It's the fact that I used to have long conversations with our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, about this. And he was right, and I would cringe, and because I, I didn't like it, but he was right. Ultimately, no matter how I view things, 
no matter how I see them through my own lens, rather than having the mind of Christ, no matter how bad I think they are, no matter how much I'm suffering, no matter how much hardship I'm in, ultimately, I'm in that situation because that's his purpose. It's for my good and it's for his glory. And I know in the moment it, does, it just doesn't feel right. I don't like it and it's hard, but there's actually great freedom in that. You have the freedom to be able to say, okay, what are you teaching me in the midst of this? Because ultimately, everything's going to be hard in this world. I genuinely wish I had gotten serious about God's sovereignty longer ago than just recently. But here's the other thing I want you to hear about this sovereignty issue. I found also that when we talk about God's sovereignty, that the results are up to him, some people take that as a message of complacency. Some people take that as a message of being passive. That's not the message. It's more about being content than it is about being complacent or passive. God is still calling us to something. God is still sending us. God has uh, empowered us. God wants us to be ambassadors for the gospel wherever we are, in whatever context, in the marketplace, in the neighborhood, in the church, uh, in the schools, wherever that is. He wants us on the job. He wants us to be obedient. And there's teaching in the Bible about being content with wherever you are, with whoever you are, with whatever you have. There's teaching about that. And, and I would argue the best teaching in the Bible about that comes from the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 4. Here's Paul saying, I have learned to be content. So it's not a spiritual gift. Wouldn't it be nice if contentment was a spiritual gift? It's not a spiritual, this is one of those things, it's not, he said, I had to learn how to be content. And he talks about how I, I've had much, I've had little, I've had a full belly, I've had an empty belly, I know how to endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. Who was more ambitious than Paul? It would be hard to make a list of people who were more ambitious than the Apostle Paul. This is not an anti-ambition message. This is not an anti-aspirational message. We need to have goals. We need to have ambition. We need to have aspirations. That's part of the deal. What Paul's saying is that every morning you should get up. Do what God is calling you to do. Have a plan. Get after it. Be energetic. But at the end of the day, here's what Paul is also saying. At the end of the day, you need to sit back and go, I'm okay with who I am. That's hard in this world today. Because everywhere you look, it seems like everybody else has it better than you, right? That's hard to do today. But at the end of the day, you need to be content with who you are. You need to be content with where you are. You're in Phoenix. Get over it. You're not moving to Montana or Nashville, all right? Maybe. I can't say it. Maybe God will move you there. But you got to be content with where you are. you got to be content with who you're with. Trust me, that next person that looks better than who you're with right now, they're sinners too. You're not going to like them either. All right? So be content with who you're with. And you've got to be content with what you're doing. Now, God may change all of those things. It's possible that he's going to change all of those things. But until he does, be content. Be filled with who Jesus is. Be filled with the gospel. And so the disciples are prepared. But now we also see that they need to be unified. So nine through 12. Jesus prays, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. 
And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Uh, That scripture that might be fulfilled is either or both, Psalm uh, 69 and 109. Now, a couple of quick observations before we get into the meat of this little uh, section here. Verse 9, Jesus does pray for the world. He's just saying, right now, that's not my burden. I I do pray for the world, but right now, my burden is to pray for these 11 guys that are right here. They need prayer right now. And then verse 12, the son of destruction, the one who is lost, is Judas. And for the sake of clarity, what happened to Judas Even the language here in this prayer and the language elsewhere that describes what happened to Judas, the one who betrayed uh, Jesus, the language never says or even implies, it doesn't even come within a whisker of implying, that Judas was somehow a helpless victim in all of this. I've heard that argument. He was just a helpless victim. No, he was not. uh, Rather, Judas made a clear decision, and in fact, it was actually a political calculation that he made. He made a political calculation. He looked at the political landscape. He decided Jesus is going to lose, and he said, I want to be on the right side of history. That's what he says. And so he decided to sell out. He went past the point of no return, and he lined up with those who would figure out how to execute Jesus because he thought they would win. And later, of course, he realized that he had made the wrong decision. But then rather than correcting his wrong decision, he compounded his wrong decision with yet another bad decision, He hung himself. So on that cheery note, let's talk about the unity of the disciples. In verse 11, Jesus prays that the disciples may be made one even as we are one. So there's this word that we we all all pastors come up with eventually. Once, Once you get deep enough into scripture and you begin to realize this idea of being one is a big deal in the Bible. It's oneness. This is a a passage of oneness which means unity in some cases, and it just means the same and one in others. And what we need to realize is that this idea of oneness, this two becoming one, oneness, unity, is a theme throughout Scripture. It it shows up as early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when God says that the man and the woman in marriage, the two shall become one. They're going to be inextricably knit together as one. That's the first time we see it. But it's a theme throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, we see that God sees himself and his people Israel as one. And in fact, when Israel rebels against God, when the leaders rebel against God, God describes that as adultery because they have broken that oneness by going off and cheating with false gods. So he calls that, he uses the metaphor of adultery. That oneness has been broken. In the New Testament, Uh, Both Paul and Jesus reiterate Genesis 2.24 about marriage, the two become one. But Paul also talks in in Ephesians chapter 2 about how through the gospel, through the cross of Christ, God has broken down the wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile, and the Jew and the Gentile have become one in Christ. So there's there's that marriage there. We also see in the New Testament that Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride and they are one. And then at the end of the New Testament in Revelation, we see that when the New Jerusalem comes and heaven meets earth and earth is restored, 
It's heaven and earth becoming one. The two become one there as well. This is a major theme throughout Scripture. And here, Jesus uses that important theme to say, I want the disciples also to be one. I want them to be in community. I want them to be unified. And here's what we need to understand about this unity that people should have in Christian community. It's, it's, first of all, it's not a unity that is achieved by legislation or mandate, but rather by a supernatural grassroots It's a supernatural grassroots unity that happens for people who have a common love for Jesus and then that love for Jesus overflows into a common love for each other. It's not that we're going to be uniformed. Uniformed and unity, not synonyms. We're going to have differences of opinion. We're going to have a diversity of gifts. There's going to be a diversity of people in the faith community. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to look. That's how we become a body. But we are unified in the gospel of Christ. And and it's this common love that we're going to need for each other and for Jesus as we engage a world that both needs Jesus but is really hostile towards Jesus. And by proxy, the world is also hostile to us. But notice the priority, notice the order. Loving God comes first. That's first. Too often we get the order of things wrong because we're so driven by self, because of the corruption of sin. And I don't think, again, I'm back in Paul, I don't think anyone summarizes this principle of unity better than Paul in Philippians chapter 1 where he writes this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by, in anything by your opponents. So there's that idea of unity. Uh, Philippians is the book of joy. The word joy is used 17 times in that short little letter. But it's also the book of unity. Paul is talking about how we are unified in Christ in the gospel. And so Jesus prays first for the preparation of his disciples, and then for the unity. And they are prepared and unified, so to speak. But then they also need this preparation and unity because they're going to need the ongoing presence and strength of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in order to go on mission and to minister in the world. That's true. And that's true for us as well. So here are the last few verses, starting in 13. But now, Father, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world, uh, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word is hated, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So you look at verse 14. You see that they and us have received and embraced God's word. But the fact that we've embraced God's word, that we're in the gospel, that naturally differentiates us from the world. And there's great tension here. The difference between the world's truth and wisdom And God's truth and wisdom is simply too radical to overcome. You can't have both. And Peter, therefore, reminds us in one of his letters, the Apostle Peter reminds us that because we're with Jesus, 
We should never be surprised by the fiery trials. We find ourselves in this world as if something strange were happening to us. Why is this happening to me? Well, Jesus told you it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Here's what's ironic and filled with tension about this. That which binds us to Jesus separates us from Jesus, but also sends us into the world with the good news. So we're bound to Jesus. That separates us from the world, and then we're sent in the world to tell them about Jesus. You see that? There's some irony there. That which we are separated from, we are still supposed to go into and minister to and be ambassadors for. Jesus said at one point, he said, you need to be in the world but not of the world. Bind yourself to me, fill yourself with the Holy Spirit, and then go into the world so that you can be in the world, so you can be light and salt in a dark and broken world, but also so that you will not become of the world. It's an important distinction, and I know there's tension there. It's hard. And then verses 17 and 19 a couple of words there just to clarify. The word sanctify means to transform over time, means to bring them along, to make them conform each day a little bit more to the likeness of Jesus, which we see in Romans chapter 8. And the word consecrate means to separate or differentiate yourself in order to be a blessing to others, which is what Jesus did for them by going to the cross and being raised. And then in verse 18, we see that uh, Jesus talks about how he was sent into the world, the word send or sent. We talked about this last week, that if we're in Christ, we're also sent. That we have a job to do, that we're called to do things. But here we're also reminded that the one who sends us also equips us to be sent. That we are prepared and we are unified. But then look at verse 15. Verse 15 is the primary theme of this entire prayer. And we need to wrap our minds about this. I'll reread it. Verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. God's MO, or his standard operating procedure, frustrates most of us. Because what his MO and what his SOP, his standard operating procedure is, that he's not going to take us out of unpleasantness, He's not going to remove us from circumstances that we don't like. He's not going to remove us from that meeting we don't want to go to or that relationship that we don't want to be in or that medical situation. He's not going to remove us from that ordinarily, but rather he's going to walk through it with us. See, our desire, our desire is that, hey, just take it away, God. You can do that, and he could. He could just take it away, and occasionally he does. I've had those experiences where he actually took it away, and I couldn't believe it. It was a great gift. But by and large, way more than 90% of the time, what he's doing is he's saying, no, you got to do this, but I'm going to walk through it with you. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit, and guess what? You're going to learn something in the midst of this. Because walking through, here's how James says it in James chapter 1. He says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. That's the world we live in. And he says, why consider it joy? Because the testing of your faith will produce something. Perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, and patience. So here we have the other thing that is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> and that is perseverance. 
How many of you would love to have perseverance and contentment just given to you by God? And he's like, no, those are the things that you got to work through. But you're going to work through them by knowing who I am. I'm telling you, on my headstone, I would love to have it say that he persevered, he was steadfast, he endured, he was patient, and he was content. But the only way that's going to happen is probably if Jackie lies. <laughs> no. The only way that's going to happen is if I walk through some stuff with God and I let him do it with me, no matter how hard it is. And I'll be the first to confess to you, I hate that. I hate it. I'm the first guy praying, God, just take this out. Take this away from me. I hope that person doesn't show up for that meeting. That would be a great blessing, God. And there they are. There's their car, car door opening up. Oh, boy, here we go. Okay. Uh, Psalm 23 in the Old Testament is about this. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I'm suffering, even though there are hardships, even though there are challenges, even though there's all this garbage that I can't stand and I wish you would just remove for me, even though... I walk through the shadow of the, the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God's presence is his greatest gift to us. His presence. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David defines God's goodness and mercy not as taking him out of situations, but rather God walking with him through situations. That's God's goodness and mercy. So I want you to consider this. This is another point of tension and irony here. I didn't grow up in the church at all. And... Through a, some of you know, through a series of circumstances, I began going to church, and God used that uh, to, for the Spirit to reveal to me that I needed the gospel, that I needed Jesus. But the first thing that the Spirit needed to reveal to me, and I believe that he needs to reveal to anybody that, that he would beckon to come to Jesus, he had to reveal to me that I was a sinner, and that my sinner had separated me from God, and that I was lost without Jesus. He had to reveal to me, first and foremost, you're a sinner. So the Holy Spirit comes. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is says, hey, you're a sinner. <laughs> you're not measuring up. No one does good. No, not one. Paul writes that in Romans chapter 3. So the Spirit reveals to me that I'm a sinner. And then I start to read God's word because I know I, know I need Jesus. And so I start to read God's word. And here's what God's word tells me. By the way, the world's going to hate you if you believe in Jesus. You're a sinner and the world's going to hate you. And then what happens? you got to go into the world and tell them this good news. <laughs> That's a burden, I'm telling you. That's huge. And yet we are sent into the world with this good news. Why is it good news? Because if we remain in that state as a, as a sinner, not knowing Jesus but loved by the world, we're not going to be with Jesus in eternity. That's a problem. That is a problem. And so Jesus comes and fixes that for us. He rectifies it, it for us. On the cross and through his resurrection, he did what we could not do for ourselves in order to atone for our sin in a way that would reconcile us to God. Jesus does that through the cross 
and the resurrection. That's good news. So as we wrap up, let me say this. In Christ, it's clear, tribulation, suffering, and hardship are inevitable, and yet victory is certain. Tribulation, hardship, and suffering are inevitable, and yet victory is certain. But here's the other thing about tribulation, suffering, and hardship. They're not mandatory. Oh, it's going to come, but we shouldn't go looking for it. We should never read the Bible and go, I need to go out and find some suffering. Trust me, the world we're living in, it's going to find you. That's the point of the gospel. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the filling of the Holy Spirit, so that we can walk through those times with wisdom and with God's will and with his truth. All, all people know that life is hard. That is, not, uh, that is not a secret. Life is hard. The world is broken. And therefore, all people throughout all of history, no matter who they are, religious and irreligious people, educated and uneducated people, wealthy people, poor people, ASU students, U of A students, GCU students, NAU students, even North High School students, my alma mater, even those people, we all know there's evil, and all of us have tried to figure out how to fix the evil, have a solution for the evil, and have, a, have a, a, an answer for the evil. We've all done something through our own brains, through our own intelligence to try to fix it, and what's happened? It's only gotten worse. There's only one solution to this. Everything we've come up with for all of history has fallen short. And in fact, I would argue that we are out of ideas. Right now, the human condition is just like Hollywood and Washington, D.C. They have no new ideas. Have you noticed that? I haven't been to a movie for three years because there's nothing new coming. I know, COVID. No, no new stories, nothing. They're just taking old stuff, repackaging it, distracting you and going, look at what's new. No, it's not. I've, that's a narrative that's been used 10 times already. Same thing in Washington, D.C. There's only one answer. It's Jesus. He's the one who comes bearing the truth, Bearing life, bearing the way. He is the one. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. There isn't. It's Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the only answer because it's the only one that has the creator and the redeemer at the center of it. So come to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that as a faith community, you would make us unified even in the midst of our differences. In fact, that's the power of your unity, is that you can unify us in yourself, even though we are different. That's a beautiful thing. And so we pray that we would have the courage to, as Paul says, walk in a manner, live our lives in a manner worthy of our calling in the gospel. Help us to discern what that calling is and help us to live it out as a, as a community of faith and as, it, as it individuals. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to our time now in, in the service for reflection and response. And uh, a big part of that is that we come to the Lord's table, communion. If our servers would please come forward. Uh, I, I say this every week because it's an important part of the story and we need to hear it every single week. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, this night that we're reading this prayer, in fact, Jesus and his disciples are at dinner. They're having dinner together. And Jesus does uh, something different during this dinner that they've never seen before. Because Jesus is about to go through something that they had never seen before with a rabbi, with their Messiah. He took the bread and he said, this is my body and it's for you. And he broke it. Because his body is going to be broken on the cross. And he says, eat this in remembrance of me. 
And then he takes a cup of wine and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, take this, do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, every time we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Why do we proclaim his death? His death is actually good news. He died because it was the only way that we could satisfy God's holiness and requirement for our sin to be paid for without us having to pay for it. That's what his death does. And then his death also points to the fact that we can celebrate the fact that we have a Savior. So when we step out into the aisle and we come down here for communion, it's a confession that we need Jesus and it's a celebration that we have him. And so we should come with joy in our hearts, with gladness in our lives that we can do this. And so when you come, you take the kit, take it back to your uh, seat, sit down, take the elements when you're ready, when you feel led, and then stand uh, when you're ready and and sing with the rest of these two songs uh, as Tyler leads us this morning. Let's do that now.
confess that I've been a criminal. I've stolen your bread and sang my own song. And Lord, I confess that I'm far from innocent. You shackled
Oh, I thought there was going to be one of those like <clears throat> at the end. Amen. Well, beloved church, thanks for being here. Uh, it's an honor to worship with you guys. Something that's cool about what we went through today was uh, the same message of Christ, but applied in the deep, hard things in life. And it is evident that we have to lean on Christ to get through those tough things. So in this, let me pray this over you from Habakkuk 3, that we might be formed into this people, that we could say this is true of us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So that means no food and no work to get food. Even if I can't eat and even if I don't have a job, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen. Well, love you guys. Go live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you at four or next week, but hopefully at four.